0: will be in Genesis chapter 42, as we wrap up our series on the patriarchs. So, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 42, and follow along with me, or follow along on the screens around the sanctuary. God's Word says, When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said? They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Let's continue on in our worship.
1: Would you mind uh, praying once more as we prepare to hear the word this morning? Father, we thank you that because of Jesus, the veil of the temple was torn in two. And through faith in him, we have access to your presence. Lord, I pray that you would guide us as we hear your word today. And Father, that you would show us how to build the houses of our lives upon this rock. To be doers of the word, O God. I pray that you would speak to each one of our hearts. And I'm so thankful that you can meet with us individually during this time. Father, I pray that you would guide me. That you would guide my thinking and my speaking. And that all would be done for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, imagine a young boy growing up in a small Midwestern town, population 212. Let's call him Timmy. Early on, Timmy's parents noticed that he had an extraordinary natural ability for running. He loved to run, and he was good at it. Instead of walking places in town, he would always run there. As he got older, he grew tall with long limbs and a sleek body like a human greyhound. In high school, he was the star of the cross-country team, making this little school famous all throughout the state. But success never got to his head. He never really got too into himself. He just liked to run. Then uh, he got a full-ride scholarship to a big university with a great running program, and his times got faster and faster. He was winning at the regional level, and then all of a sudden winning at the national level. And this little town would track his many victories and write updates in the papers and put banners in their yards, and, and the gas station sign would read, Go, Timmy, go! He became a hometown hero. When he came home to visit, everyone would know it. He would wave hi to the mailman as he ran along the highway road and wave hi to the cars that honked and cheered for him along the way. By the end of the college, his times got so good, he was invited to compete in the Summer Olympics. In the year leading up, he trained rigorous, rigorously, making many sacrifices his times and the preliminaries put him in the top three of his event, the men's 5,000 meters, they knew going into it that it would be close between he and two others. And then the day arrived. The whole little town, all 212 people, piled into the high school auditorium while the event was projected on the screen. They hugged and squeezed the hands of his parents who were nervously sitting in the front row. A hush fell over the crowd as as the runners lined up on the screen. There was Timmy! The pistol popped and the runners were off. From the start, Timmy was hanging with the front pack, but he was never in the lead. But then somewhere in the second half, he started passing people one by one. With a half a mile left to go, it was, it was just down to Timmy and one other runner. They fought back and forth, back and forth. Finally, with one lap to go, Timmy emerged into the lead. This high school auditorium roared with cheers. The runners rounded the last bend and, and suddenly the top pack sprinted towards the finish. They zoomed past Timmy and he could not keep up. He lost his steam. He finished fifth overall. And that was it. The TV cut to commercial. The auditorium slowly emptied. People shook their heads and sighed on their way out. It was heart-wrenching. Why would I tell you this awful, uninspiring story this morning? Because this morning we need to know that the same thing can happen to us. This can be the story of our lives. We too face the challenge of not finishing well. And I'm not talking about sports, but life, where it really counts. Whether it's a situation in life, a season in life, or life in general, it's easy to lose steam, to give up or give in, and not finish well when we face something it's easy to let our character and attitude collapse under the pressure how do we resist giving in to frustration or descending into bitterness and isolation I have no doubt that there are people here this morning who are tired and worn down many of us are most of us are In different areas of our lives, and at some point, all of us are. Whatever our situation or season or life in general, how do we finish well? How do we finish well in those areas? How do we maintain our stride, not lose steam, and not give in? Well, today we will finish the book of Genesis, and with that, the story of Joseph. And one thing we will see is that Joseph finished well. In the past weeks, we saw how Joseph faced challenge after challenge after challenge, betrayed by his brothers, left in a pit to die, sold into slavery, lived in Egypt where nothing was familiar, far away from everything he knew, slandered by Potiphar's wife, thrown into prison, forgotten by the cupbearer, and yet, he didn't throw in the towel in his heart. His character and attitude didn't collapse. We saw how he kept going and kept going and kept going. And so the question is this. What kept him going? What was Joseph's secret? The answer is found in our passage today. Please turn to Genesis chapter 42, starting in verse 1. Genesis 42. And we'll actually walk through chapters 42 through 45 and then jump over to chapter 50 where Genesis ends to see how Joseph finished well. Last week we saw how Joseph was elevated as ruler of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. He oversaw food distribution during the seven years of plenty that God enabled him to predict. He stored up reserve food for the seven years of famine that would follow. And now that famine had officially set in. Everything was dry and dead all over the earth. It looked nothing like Iowa, including Canaan, where Jacob and his eleven sons were living. We pick up in chapter 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Joseph did not send Benjamin. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Upon hearing that there was food in Egypt, Jacob immediately sends his sons there. He was desperate. Notice he doesn't say, because I'm a little hungry and Egyptian carryout out is my favorite. He says that we may live and not die. The famine had become a life and death situation. And yet even though Benjamin, a, a strapping young man, could have helped carry that much more back, Jacob was not willing to let him go. Distrust and favoritism still linger in the air of the family. So we watch as ten of Jacob's sons load their donkeys and disappear into the stream of travelers heading to Egypt. Down in Egypt, it seemed like an ordinary day for Joseph. He woke up that morning and, as usual, went to personally oversee all the food sales for the travelers. Everything was routine that day. But then he glanced up and a a group of ten men caught his eye. As they came in, he looked again. It was them. It, It had to be them. It was his brothers. He recognized them, but they didn't recognize him. He was a teenager when they had sold him. And now he was nearly 40. And no doubt he was also made to look like an Egyptian. He walked like an Egyptian. He was speaking through an interpreter. And on top of that, who would expect Joseph to be the ruler of the land. Joseph's mind raced as he considered what to do, all the while playing the part. You are spies! He shouted. It was a way to interrogate them, to get more information out of them. He must have thought, where is Benjamin? Why ten instead of eleven? No, no, no! His brothers said, We're not spies. We're, we're all brothers. The sons of one man. We just came to buy food. Joseph wondered if they had done to Benjamin what they had done to him. I don't believe you, he countered. Wanting more information, and then he got it. The brothers replied, We, your servants, our twelve brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. Joseph tried to hide his relief. His father was alive, and his brother Benjamin was at home. But he wanted them to prove it. He he wanted to see Benjamin with his own eyes. So he said, Send one of you back, and bring your youngest brother here, and then I will believe your story. And with that, he threw them all into prison to prove he wasn't joking. His life was once in their hands. And now their lives are in his. What will he do? Instead of showing revenge, he shows a little kindness. It's an early sign that he has already forgiven them. He thought about the fact that their families at home were in desperate need of food. And if only one brother went back There's only so much He could bring with Him. So after three days, He comes to them and says, Because I fear God, i change changed my mind. Nine of you can go back, and only one of you has to stay. The situation is merciful, and yet it's still severe. And the brothers know it. Listen to what they say to one another in verse 21. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of His soul when He begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. There's a sense of remorse in their words that's shocking. They had been so cold and uncaring before. It's like they're waking up to their guilt. And even though they didn't know it, Joseph understood every word and it moved him to tears. He he turns to hide his face. Quickly, he dries his eyes and turns back and follows through with the plan. He retains Simeon and sends the others back, He, but he continues to show them kindness. He gives them extra provisions for the road, and he even returns the money into their sacks. But the brothers don't understand. When they discover the money on the way home, they gasp. They're horrified. I imagine them saying to one another, We're being framed as Thieves how will he ever go back there utterly defeated they walk home when they arrive they tell their father Jacob everything and they tell them how, they tell him how they need to bring Benjamin back to Egypt but Jacob adamantly refuses in verse 38 he says my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one left If harm should happen to him on on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Seems like everything is stalled and at a dead end. And yet a little while later, in chapter 43, the family is running out of food once again. See, maybe Jacob thought the famine would let up, but it didn't. So he asks his sons to go back to Egypt and get a little more food. But then Judah steps up and says to his father, we can't go back unless Benjamin goes with us. It's the only way. I myself will be a pledge for his safety. Put him in my care. I myself will bear the blame if I do not bring him back to you. Father. Jacob pauses and then finally relents. Jacob must learn to let go of control once again in his life. And he is forced to treat Benjamin as just one among the other brothers. You see, God is not done with Jacob yet. He is still, at this point, transforming Jacob. Transformation is a lifelong process. Jacob would tell us that there's no such thing as spiritual retirement. And the next thing we know, the brothers are back in Egypt. Joseph glances down the long line of travelers and he spots them. Only this time, there's one more brother with them. He calls over his steward to himself and says, See those men. Bring them to my house. I want to eat a meal with them at noon today. So we watch as the brothers who were nervously waiting are, are pulled out of line by the steward and escorted to Joseph's house. And as the brothers walk there looking around Egypt, they're terrified. It only confirmed their greatest fears. This is a setup, they imagine. The secluded home of this mighty ruler would be the ideal place to stage an attack, to descend on them from all sides. Their nerves were raw as they waited outside the home. At first sight of the steward, they leaped to their feet and tell him, Sir, this is is about the money, right? Listen, we had no idea. Someone else put put the money back in our sack. We had no idea. We, We brought it back with us today and we brought back extra. Please, sir. The steward just looked at them smiled and said, Don't worry, I received your full payment. The money was a gift from your God. So now the brothers were thoroughly confused, but slightly more at ease. Simeon, one of them said, as the steward brought him out from prison. He was alive. Now they were even more at ease. And then and then they were treated as honored guests. Their, their feet were washed. Their donkeys were given fodder. And then Joseph arrives. The brothers quickly scramble, lining up and present him with a gift. And then they all bow to the ground. All throughout these chapters, we constantly see the brothers bowing down to Joseph so that we don't miss that this is all a fulfillment of the original dreams. The question is not whether... Joseph will be a ruler over them. It's what kind of ruler he will be. How will Joseph use his power? Well, the first words out of Joseph's mouth are asking, how are you doing? He asks about their welfare. In other words, how are your families? And then he can't resist. How's your old man? Then for the first time in 20 years, Joseph sees Benjamin up close. The last time he saw him, he was a child and now he's nearly 30 years old. Overwhelmed at the sight at, with warmth through his brother. He almost blows the whole thing. Abruptly, he runs out of the room and finds a place to weep. Six times throughout these chapters, we see Joseph weeping. It's an indication of just how wounded he was. But it also shows us just how much he had been healed and just how much his family now means to him. Regaining his composure, Joseph returns and says, Serve the food. I imagine the lavish feast kind of being like a Brazilian steakhouse. Servers were taking portions from Jacob's table to the brothers with five times as much for Benjamin. The brothers savored it. Think about it. They had been eating rations under the famine for years. And now they ate and drank freely with this ruler. They looked looked around at each other in wonder, tainted with fear. Somehow, somehow, The ruler had seated them in the exact order of their age. How did he know? It's like he had secret knowledge into their lives, like he could see into their souls. Who was this man? That night continued in chapter 44. We hear Joseph give a somewhat puzzling command to his steward. says this, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. Joseph had a plan. Early the next morning, the brothers are sent off on their donkeys, and not long after, while they're still in the suburbs, they hear the pounding of horse hooves rapidly approaching behind them. They turn around to see who it is and it's the steward scowling at them. Joseph had instructed him to accuse them of theft and he plays along wonderfully. How dare you steal my master's cup? Don't you know he has his ways of finding these things out? But the brothers adamantly deny it. They were sure, so sure that they, that they were innocent, they say this. Look, If any one of us took it, we will all be your slaves, and that one will die. The steward replies, deal. But the one who has it will be my slave, and the rest of you can go free. The men lower their sacks, and the steward works slowly from the oldest to the youngest. I just love that, because he knows Benjamin has the sack, has the cup, but he works from the oldest to the youngest. And I imagine that with each brother, the men become more and more confident. But then finally, he gets to Benjamin. He reaches down into the sack, pulls out his arm and says, Aha! As soon as the brothers saw the cup, they they tear their clothes, crying out in grief, No! It can't be! The steward had said that the rest could go free. But notice how it says in verse 13, Every man loaded his donkey. All of them returned to the city. Back at home, Joseph is waiting for them. Perhaps he raises his eyebrows as he sees off in the distance, not one brother, but eleven brothers coming back. The brothers come in and immediately throw themselves on the ground, groveling. He speaks to them sharply. What have you done? Don't you know that a man like me can practice divination? Once again, he's playing the part. Judah responds in verse 16, his voice shaking. He speaks on behalf of all the brothers. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. What guilt? Judah and his brothers didn't steal the cup. And they probably believed Benjamin that he didn't either. They, have, they themselves had just been framed. Most likely what Judah has in mind is the guilt of their actions against their own brother years before. And this gives us insight into what Joseph's Elaborate act accomplished. Part of what it accomplished was to help the brothers come clean. To own their guilt. That's what we see happening here. The brothers are owning their guilt. But there's more. Judah offers, We will all be your slaves. But Joseph counters, just like the steward, No, but only the guilty one. The rest of you can go home in peace. Do you see what's happening here? Joseph has masterfully recreated almost the exact scenario that happened to him 20 years earlier. Think about it. The new favored son, Benjamin, a beloved son of Rachel, whom Joseph had just showered with preferential treatment, giving him five times as many portions, could be left as a slave in Egypt. The brothers could go home with silver in their pockets and be rid of Benjamin and tell their father that they are innocent. It was just like that day, that fateful day when Joseph was thrown into a pit. Only now, what would the brothers do? Would they treat Benjamin the same way they treated Joseph? Judah steps forward. Humbly, he asks to speak one last time. It is the longest speech recorded in all of Genesis. Essentially, Judah says, When we last came, you demanded to see the boy. We explained that his father loves him especially, so that if the boy leaves his father, his father will die. We had to come back, so we we had to bring the boy. But if we go home, and he's not with us, I can't bear to see what will happen to my father. I personally became a pledge to bring him back or bear the blame myself. So please, take me as your servant instead. I would rather suffer myself than to see my father suffer. It's shocking. These words spoken by the same man who 20 years earlier first pitched the idea to sell Joseph for a few shekels into slavery. He has gone from greedy gain to selfless sacrifice. Like the other patriarchs and maybe even more, Judah has his own transformation story. And the other brothers stand with him. Remember, they could have all left back in the suburbs. But they all came back. Something has taken place in their hearts. It was a sign of true repentance. Repentance. And this is the other part of what Joseph's elaborate act accomplished an opportunity for the brothers to show true repentance. And I just want to pause here for a moment because this highlights three things needed to restore relationships. Three things. First is forgiveness. Joseph had to forgive them, that comes first. Forgiveness must always be given. Even the billionth time, forgiveness must always be given. But in order for the relationship to be restored, the other two parts have to take place. Second is the brothers owning their guilt. And third is the brothers showing true repentance. Change in attitude and actions, even if it's not always perfect or a straight line. Sometimes we are in the in in the midst of a conflict and we want forgiveness, but we don't want to do the hard work of owning our guilt and showing true repentance. I want you to know you may be forgiven, but the relationship will never be restored that way. It takes owning our guilt and then crying out to God to help us take concrete steps to change our attitude and actions. That's what we see here with the brothers. Forgiveness, owning their guilt, and showing true repentance. Back at the house, Joseph could not contain himself any longer. In chapter 45, he orders all his attendants to leave. Tears stream down his face, and without an interpreter standing between them, he looks at his brothers and says in perfect Hebrew, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? They couldn't answer him. They were so terrified. But do you know what he says? Come near me, please. He speaks a word of comfort to them, saying, Don't beat yourself up. Yes, you sold me here, but at the same time, God sent me here. And then he says, there's much more famine to come. It won't lift any time soon. Hurry and get my father and all of you come back here. Not just my father and Benjamin. All of you come back here and I will provide for all of you. Tell dad what God has done. The scene closes with Joseph embracing each one of his brothers, weeping. And then they stood for a while and just talked. Notice how their relationship is even stronger than it was before all this happened. Isn't that amazing? God took what was broken, and made it stronger. And he still does that. When Jacob hears the report back home, he doesn't believe it at first. It's too much to take in. But slowly, as he sees everything from Pharaoh, everything that Pharaoh and Joseph sent, and as he hears Joseph's words, he finally says, Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Such a different picture than what we were left with at the end of chapter 37 when the family was shattered. You see, God overcame the wreckage of evil and sin and brought goodness and life out of it. This is the theme of the life of Joseph. And this is the theme of the book of Genesis. God is reversing and restoring the wreckage of evil and sin. It does not get the last word. He triumphs over it. This is what Joseph highlights at the very end of the book, chapter fifty. Jump over there real quick if you can, Genesis fifty. After some, apart from apart from some biographical information, this is how the book of Genesis ends. After Jacob dies, Joseph's brothers come to him and try to apologize one last time. They're still afraid. And this was his response in verses 20 and 21. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This was Joseph's secret. This is how he finished well. This is how he didn't give in or give up. This is what he was holding on to. It reminds me of a line from a song I used to listen to. It says, If a nightmare ever does unfold, perspective is a lovely hand to hold. Joseph held on to this perspective. You meant evil for me, but God meant it for good. In a manner of speaking, God hijacked the evil and turned it towards good. That is what Joseph held on to. That is what kept Joseph going to the very end. And this too, is what helps us finish well. Take a moment to think about an area of your life where you are tempted... To lose steam, to, su- to succumb to bitterness, or passiveness, frustration, or isolation. Maybe life in general. Joseph's life says this. Don't give up. Keep your character. Keep your integrity. Don't collapse in on yourself. Keep being faithful with what's in front of you. Keep going. Keep holding on to what Joseph held on to. God is working in our lives to bring about what is ultimately good. We can keep going. One commentator summed up the entire book of Genesis and especially the life of Joseph like this. God has mastery over the chaos. Did you know that God has mastery over the chaos in your life? God can turn darkness into light, weakness into strength, inadequacy in ourselves to adequacy in Him, wounds into sources of healing, sorrow into joy, and evil into good. Just think of the cross. At the cross, the Son of God was crucified. It seemed like evil had won the day. But you see, the very thing that was meant for evil, God meant for good. Eternal good. On the third day, Jesus rose again to declare that He wasn't just crucified. End of story. He was crucified for us. As a perfect sacrifice for sin, that by faith in Him, we might have forgiveness, peace with God, and life everlasting. And now the cross, the symbol of ultimate evil, has become the symbol of ultimate good. Many of us have heard Romans 8.28. Many of us have heard it many times. But sometimes we treat it like a little motivational statement. And not like it's real. like it it actually makes a difference in our lives. The life of Joseph, the book of Genesis, and ultimately the cross of Jesus testify to its truth. So I want you to hear it afresh. Hear it like you're hearing it the first time. And let it sink in. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. You know, perspective is a lovely hand to hold. Hold on to it. And whatever our situation in life, season in life, or life in general, may we, like Joseph, finish well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for reversing the wreckage of evil and sin. We thank you for bringing restoration. We thank you that you have mastery over the chaos in our lives. That you are actively working to bring about what is ultimately good for us. I pray that we would let that sink in, that we would hold on to that, and that you would help us to keep going and to finish well, to remember Joseph, but ultimately to look to Jesus who finished well. Help us to hold on to him. In Jesus' name, amen.